and welcome to Morbidly Captivating, a true crime comedy podcast. I'm Andrea. And I'm Cassie. We're here today with a true crime case our researcher Jeanette sent us. Who? Jeanette, our producer. Oh, uh, okay, yeah. Uh, here you go, making up imaginary employees again. Uh, what a year 2020 has been. We've been in quarantine so long, I guess I'm making up imaginary people. <laughs> anyway... You know, we can talk about the virus, the election, or even the racial tensions inflamed by the killing of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, but it's the unsolved case of murder in Louisville, Kentucky that has captured our attention. Alberta Odell Jones. An icon and a trailblazer for equal rights, Alberta was a rising star before her untimely death. While looking at the photos taken in Louisville, Kentucky during the recent protests, You'll notice the picture of Alberta Jones hanging on the side of the River City Bank building. Alberta is one of several people who are recognized as a Louisville hometown hero. So who was this woman, and why is her picture posted? I've seen those big pictures in Louisville before, and I thought, hmm, that's cool. Wonder how you get your picture up there. I have no idea. Well, actually, we do. We'll talk about that later. But (laughs) anyway, um... My son is at university, and he was, like, randomly selected for a marketing promotion. So his picture was taken for the department he's in and used on, like, brochures and pamphlets and all that. And at his university, they have those giant banners hanging up, like, on every building. Um, The main streets that go down through campus, you can see several of them. So I was, like, all excited. I'm like, yeah, my kid's going to be on the side of the building, like, you know, 20, 30 feet tall. Was he? No. Uh. (laughs) I don't really know what the criteria was. He never made it to the building. But he was in a bunch of the marketing materials. Um, Later, I heard that it was a lot of, like, children of alumni people who donate a large amount of money, I'd say probably true. I don't really know, because I don't really know any of the students that were featured. It's a fairly sizable university, but I don't know, maybe. We'll we'll find out later in the story how um, Alberta managed to get her picture on the side of the building. I want my picture on the side of the building, but it'll probably just be... like 30 feet tall. A wanted poster. I was hoping for the podcast. Like, we're gonna be famous! Probably just a wanted poster. (laughs) Probably just a wanted poster. I agree. Okay, so, Alberta was born in Louisville, Kentucky on November 12th, 1930. She grew up in Louisville's West End and graduated from Louisville Central High School. She earned her bachelor's degree and graduated third in her class from Louisville Municipal College for Negroes, which later merged with the University of Louisville. In 1956, she was the first African-American to attend the University of Louisville Law School. In her second year, she transferred to Howard University School of Law, where she graduated fourth in her class in 1958. In 1959, Alberta became one of the first African-American women to pass the Kentucky Bar. She opened a successful law office in downtown Louisville. She negotiated... Cassius Clay's first professional fight contract. And if you don't know who Cassius Clay is, you might know him better as Muhammad Ali. She advocated for increased African-American political participation. She created the Independent Voters Association, which registered 6,000 African-Americans. She rented voting machines and held classes in her office on how to vote for your candidate, 
which resulted in a major political shakeup in 1961 when black voters helped oust the mayor and many of the city's council mem- city council members. The new city administration enacted the first public accommodation ordinance in the South just two years later in 1963. She participated in the Civil Rights March in Louisville and the March on Washington. So clearly this lady was a real go-getter. She accomplished more in her first five years after college than most people do in their entire lives. I don't know about you, but in my first five years after college, after dropping out of college, um, I focused really, really hard on what to mix with wild turkey and learning all the lyrics to Super Bass by Nicki Minaj. That's so ambitious, Cassie. I know. I'm right up there with her. I'm absolutely too. I mean, also... Dropped out of college to have a family, not the alcohol, but that came later. (laughs) I'm glad that she was ambitious. It makes me feel kind of like a slacker. Yeah. Here we are. Absolutely. (laughs) Hey, we're podcasters, so. We are professionals. We're going to be famous. We're going to be rich. I don't know. We Maybe. better be rich. Join we want to be Patreon. famous without being rich. Join our Patreon. Our merch. Uh, this is a lot of work, so the more you support us, the more we can do. We know you love our cases and our awesome sense of humor. Yeah, we're hilarious. It's <laughs> <laughs> all funny. In 1964, Alberta Jones was appointed city attorney in Louisville. She was the first woman of any race to hold the position. Just a year later, in February of 1965... She was appointed prosecutor for the Domestic Relations Court, again a first for a woman, let alone a person of color. She was responsible for prosecuting mostly white men for spouse abuse. It's important to note that although she was a registered Democrat, she voted independently and encouraged others to do the same, voting for the man and not the party. She was appointed by a Republican administration, which proves that she was well respected in her field. She took the job, but told the prosecutor who appointed her, I'm not promising anything, as if to say she would not tow the party line or stop her activism just because she was being given a job. Think about it. She was not only a woman, but an African-American woman living in 1965 Louisville, Kentucky. Racial tensions were high. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech was delivered just two years earlier, and he would be assassinated in a mere three years after her death. Alberta was at the forefront of empowering African Americans by teaching them how to become registered voters, and now she was prosecuting mostly white men for spouse abuse. People would tell her, you've got two strikes against you. You're a woman and you're black. But she wasn't phased by those comments. In fact, she would respond, yeah, but I've got one strike left, and I've seen people hit home runs when all they have is one strike left. At the time of her death, Alberta lived with her mother and sister. She and her sister, Flora Shanklin, were born five years apart, and they were very close, practically inseparable. It should also be noted that Alberta rarely went out at night. Yeah, I mean... I don't go out at night. either. I turned old. I used to. I will, maybe, but not on a weekday. I, I used to. I mean, we used to enjoy going out to eat or whatever exploring town but now we tend to go out really early in the morning and have breakfast and explore during the day 
And then we're like at home by 3 p.m. ready to take a nap. We're done for the day. Not going back out. I used to stay out doing God knows what. Like one time I went hiking with some friends at like 3 in the morning. It's totally safe, right? That's safe. Yeah. Absolutely. That was like in my early 20s, but... Yeah, I don't do that anymore. I don't. That might be a good idea considering the content we cover <laughs> on this podcast. Uh, all right, so we're okay. However, on the evening of Wednesday, August 4th, 1965, at around 10 p.m., Alberta was reading a magazine story about the assassination of President Kennedy while sitting on the couch as her sister went upstairs to go to bed. It's here that the story starts to get a little convoluted as witnesses give different versions of the event that, events that night. Flora remembers her sister receiving a phone call from her friend who was facing a lawsuit and was asking Jones to come to her home. But it was 10 at night. Alberta told the friend there was nothing that could be done at that time. Flora said that Alberta didn't want her friends who were less educated than her to think that she was above them. Alberta's friend said, Since you've got this position, you've gotten so uppity that you don't have any time for your friends. And Alberta responded with, Okay, I'm coming. Alberta wanted to prove her loyalty by going to the friend's house, but not before she provided, not before what proved to be in an eerie final conversation with her sister. Florida said, I said Florida. <laughs> I said Florida. Florida man Friday. <laughs> Flora said, I left her on the couch reading a magazine about Kennedy getting assassinated. And the last thing I said to her, which still hurts, because she sat there and she said, I hope I don't get assassinated. And I said, you don't worry about it. You're not the president of the United States. That was the night Alberta Jones was murdered. Damn. What a premonition. Have you ever said that you hope that you aren't killed? I don't think I have. Um, well, I probably have because I'm so, I'm so paranoid. Um, I'm sure I have. I watch way too much crime yeah. shows to not think about that occasionally. Like, I always think about the movie Psycho and, you know, the shower scene and, um, that's always freaks me out, but I've got a shower knife, so I'm good. What's a shower knife? It's a knife you keep in the shower. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. <laughs> shower knife. Shower knife. <laughs> I, I guess that's kind of like my wasp spray. I keep a bottle of wasp, wasp spray by the door, the front door, the back door. I mean, it, it looks like bug spray. Nobody thinks anything of it. But that shit shoots 27 feet and it works better than pepper spray. I don't know why so. I just thought of like Ant-Man coming in the <laughs> little like tiny house and you're just like, around. get out of <laughs> here. <laughs> I'm batting. I don't know how that would But work. I didn't know it was as like as good as pepper spray that's good I've heard it's better than pepper spray and it shoots so far it has like a really kind of pointed stream and if you get that in your eyes you have to go to the hospital and have it washed out you can't like you're not just gonna get over it on your own unlike pepper spray so it's pretty damn effective and shoots so far and it's less likely to blow back in your face uh-huh. Than pepper spray, so maybe it's I need a safer option. Maybe I need to get some of that to go along with my shower knife because yeah. I do have pepper spray. And one time, um, I wanted to see if it worked. Like if you know, <laughs> of course you did. I wanted to see, so I went What's in my bathroom. Can't play with it. And I did a tiny little squirt. Like <laughs> that's it. Just in my sink. How I long? I, was, I how thought long I was gonna die. Back? It yeah. took like five seconds, and then I was like, 
Oh my god, I couldn't breathe. My eyes were burning, and that was just the vapor in the just air, you know. How long did it take I'm you to get over it? Like a few hours. That's it. I mean, think about it. It wasn't even sprayed on me. Spray like an attacker, and you how much yourself. Spray, yeah, yeah. So I think my wife sprays awesome, and it's like three bucks. So you can't beat that. Get get a thing for your car and everywhere in your house. All right. So the sister says that Alberta went to meet a friend to discuss a legal issue. However, the friend Alberta met with tells a slightly different story. The call Alberta received was from Gladys Wyckoff. According to Gladys, she wanted Alberta to come over so that Alberta could be fitted for a wig she had previously ordered. We know that Alberta went to Gladys's salon on West Broadway and tried on the wig. Then the two drove to a restaurant at 4th and River Road for sandwiches. Afterward, they went to Gladys's home and talked for a while. Alberta left around 1.30 in the morning, still wearing the wig. This was the last known time Alberta was seen alive. So, a little convoluted. Lawsuit, wig. Which one? Not sure it? why there's a different story. I mean, clearly the uh, sister overheard one conversation. Gladys gives a different version. You know, we, we do know that Alberta was wearing the wig. So that mm-hmm. part is true, maybe. Maybe it was both. Maybe it was both, and there really isn't a discrepancy. Not really sure here. That is kind of weird, though. A little, a little weird. Yeah. But maybe not. Maybe, maybe not. Yeah. You know, Alberta was very clearly driven and dedicated to her career, so it, you know, it's possible that going at kind of a random time was really helpful to her, and Gladys did her a special favor. Mm-hmm. You know, if she can't come during normal working hours, even if that's you know not not her typical routine. Yeah. This this was kind of a special treat, and for friends to catch up and visit. Yeah, friends do that. I mean, work around I would, their schedule. I would do that. And... I mean. I don't go out at night, ever. <laughs> like, 8 p.m., I'm done, y'all. <laughs> then got on the comfy clothes, it's but over. If I was like... But if you called, I'd probably go. Um, probably the stupider the reason, the more likely I would be to go. <laughs> so, yeah. So then around 2.15 a.m., a family in the west end of Louisville reported hearing screams and seeing a woman being dragged by a man into the back of a car near the 2700 block of Magazine Street. should be noted here that's a 45-minute window from the time Gladys says that Alberta left her house and the time the scream was heard. Hmm. How far away was her car? This would be a long walk, 45 minutes in the middle of the night to get to her car. It just doesn't you know, sound... just doesn't sound like it adds up. No, that uh, doesn't make any sense to me. Not at all. I mean, I couldn't imagine walking... 45 minutes. Like, 10 minutes would be blocks away. That would be too that, long for rain. To, yeah, minutes? way too far. It, at 1 a.m. or 1.30 a.m. I get... Did she drive somewhere and then get assaulted? Um, that, that must I'm not, have, I'm that not has sure to how be, that... That has to be it. How like that Maybe she them. was at a stoplight or something. Or made a stop at a gas station or yeah something. Not sure. This could be a total red herring and the scream these people heard... Completely unrelated. Yeah. We, we really don't know. Um, I guess this part will be unsolved. I hear screams around here all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but it's your cat. It's usually your oh, cat. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, hear, I hear the screams and I'm like, what are those kids doing next to... Oh, no, it's, it's the cat. My okay. cat. It's, he's a character. <laughs> so the next morning, around 10.30 a.m., some boys spotted a body in the Ohio River near Fontaine Ferry Park 
an amusement park that used to be located near the Shawnee Park on the river. The body was fully clothed, but without shoes. Around 1.30 that afternoon, Alberta's mother called the Louisville Crime Prevention Bureau because her daughter failed to return from the visit with her friend the night before. The body was later identified by Daryl Owens, who shared a law office with Alberta. She was only 34 years old. In 2017, 52 years after her death, the Washington Post featured an article titled, Who Killed Alberta Jones, Louisville's First Black Female Prosecutor? which stated that the brutal murder of Alberta O. Jones was never solved, despite fingerprints obtained from her car and witnesses who saw men tossing a body from a bridge. Her then 81-year-old sister, Florida... Florida? <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> Thanks, Jeanette, for giving us a case with a lady named Flora and expecting us not to call her Florida, Damn you, Florida. after recording Florida Man Friday. All right. Appreciate that. Her then 81-year-old sister, Flora, who still lived in Louisville, was quoted as saying, because things were still so segregated in Louisville then, I believe if she had been, if she had been a white woman prosecutor, they would have turned over heaven and hell to solve this. But she was black. They didn't do anything about it. Alberta was driving a rental car the night, the, that night since her personal car was in a repair shop. The rental car she was driving was found parked in the 3100 block of Dell Park Terrace, about 10 blocks southeast from where her body was recovered. There were bloodstains on the back seat, on the floor of the back seat, and on the back of the front seat. Her upper denture plate was found on the back floor of the car. There were also pieces of brick on the back seat. The steering wheel had fingerprints, particles of brick, and other matter. These were sent to the FBI in Washington, D.C. for study. Um, there was also a pair of shoes found near uh, the south exit of the Sherman Minton Bridge on the Shawnee Park golf course that were identified by her mother as belonging to Alberta. This led police to theorize that she was thrown from the bridge after being beaten unconscious. Witnesses later recall seeing a body being tossed in the river by three unidentified men at the bridge. An autopsy revealed the Jones had received several blows to the head before being tossed unconscious into the water where she drowned. The official cause of death on her autopsy report was listed as drowning. Oddly, three years after her death, Alberta's purse was found hanging from the bridge. That's weird. That's really weird. Three years later. So, are the police that incompetent? That they didn't find it? Was it well hidden? Or... Feel like the was the place there later by the killer. That's creepy. Maybe maybe I'm just judging too harshly, but I feel like you would see that if you were mm-hmm. investigating, yeah, looking at the crime scene. But then again, maybe not. Maybe it was. A, maybe I mean, it was a I'd weird have to spot. See the bridge and where it was I would found. Have to see it. Yeah. How did it get there? I mean, it stayed for three years through storms and rain and wind yeah. and people. I'm shocked that it would stay there for three years. Yeah. So, I and did I it get hung, or did someone put it there? Yeah. How how well hidden was it? How mm-hmm. hard did they look? Mm-hmm. You know, were they looking at the bridge or were they looking at the water? I I want to know. Witnesses saw a body being tossed off a bridge by three men in the middle of the night. 
and they, they didn't, didn't say call police. They wait. Kinda they don't know like... that the body's there till the next day. That's that's kind of sketchy. That's kind of sad. Sounds kind of made up, made if up. you ask me. I don't know. I, but I don't know. Doesn't never sound know. right, that's for sure. All right, so now we'll get into the theories. Theory one. The police were publicly discussing the possibility that her death was related to her work as a prosecutor, perhaps a defendant who she put in jail. Now, we're not going to point any fingers here, but I think it also has to be said that studies have shown that at least 40% of police officer families experience domestic violence, in contrast to 10% of families in the general population. So there is the possibility that the murderer could be a police officer, or that given the climate of the time, the civil rights era, that police just didn't try very hard to find her killer because they didn't like how she went after white male abusers. I think that's a good theory. I think that's a very good theory. So. We still have a couple more. Yeah, second theory. There was a theory that she may have been a target of a robbery, but this was dismissed by her family because she didn't wear jewelry and did not carry much cash. But I don't really understand that comment because how is a robber going to know by looking at someone if they have money on them? Like, she could have $300 in her purse or she could have some spearmint gum, a tampon, and a wheat penny. They don't know right. what's in there. I mean, yeah. You kind of have to like rob them and then to find, find out. out. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't really make a lot of sense. Um, at her death, her estate, in today's money, was worth about a half a million dollars, and that was solely from her buying up property and investments and understanding how businesses work. Um, and Lee Remington said that from Bellarmine University, or professor, p- professor at Bellarmine University. So, okay, so she didn't wear jewelry and she didn't carry much cash. Mm-hmm. Uh, she still probably had some cash on her. I mean, she went out to eat. This yeah. was before debit cards were prevalent and a thing. Um, she had a lot of money, so she probably dressed nicer than most people out at 1.32 a.m. So, you know, I, I could see how somebody would look at her and think, ooh, that lady's got money. Maybe yeah. she's got some cash on her. and She looks nice. She's got a brand new wig. Yeah, nice she's, wig she's on. looking all bougie and ready yeah. to go. You know, or I don't know, and, and much money. How much is much money? Mm-hmm. To somebody needing to fix $10 would be enough to murder somebody for. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't necessarily need 300 people have certainly murdered others for less. For less yeah. I mean, I'm, it's kind of sad, but it's, that's reality, I guess. It, basically, it doesn't mean she wasn't But it doesn't mean she was. Robbed. Like, yeah, it we doesn't don't know. mean she was either, yeah. So theory number three. Her case was also discussed... In the context of five other unsolved homicides in the West End of Louisville that year, all women, and another from the previous October of a woman who was found in the Ohio River down near Fort Knox. Information on these cases was limited due to the time frame, so we really have no idea at this point if those cases are or are not connected. If we come across anything, we'll do an update at a later time. We do have an update to this story, although it is still unsolved. In 2008, the FBI matched a fingerprint found inside Jones's car to a man who was then, at the time, 17, year old, 17 years old. 
A detective interviewed the man who submitted to a who was submitted to a polygraph test. The polygraph examination revealed that deception was indicated. Decepticons attack. Oh wait, wrong show. Sorry. <laughs> When the man was questioned regarding the circumstances surrounding the murder of Alberta Jones, according to a police report, but the prosecutor decided two years later not to pursue the case, citing loss of evidence and the death of investigators and other key witnesses. Um, I just wanted to add a little comment here. Polygraphs aren't really used to find the truth. They're just a tool for detectives to scare or manipulate the accused, which can be good or bad depending on how you look at it but uh they actually can't be used in court because they aren't accurate and it's like a pseudoscience it's a pseudoscience yeah i agree i mean i, I just wanted to throw that out there yep little tidbit. there's a reason they can't be used in court yeah but that doesn't mean they're not useful a, a useful tool yeah so we mentioned lee remington before but let's go into a little more detail on who she is Remington is an associate professor of political science at Bellarmine University and is also the pre-law program director. When she was a first-year law student at the University of Louisville Brandy School of Law, her attention was drawn to a group photo on the wall. She noticed that they were all African-American pioneers in Kentucky law, but even more noticeable was Alberta Jones, the only female in the group. Remington stated that she had always been interested in history and civil rights, but she'd never heard of Alberta Jones. She found it incredulous that the slaying of a prosecutor would go unsolved after so many years. For years, police told the family there wasn't enough evidence to arrest anyone. Police told Remington, when she began her research in 2013, that witnesses in the case were dead. But then, a friend of the Jones family gave Remington the police records he had obtained from an open records request. Within 10 minutes, she found two major discrepancies. In one of those discrepancies, the record says that all the detectives who worked on the case were dead, but that wasn't true. She immediately located one of the detectives, Carl Quarter, who had collected evidence in 1965. Remington called Quarter and she was invited to his house where she was able to interview him. At the time of the investigation, Quarter was a young detective and had overseen much of the collection of evidence. In 2016, Remington sent a letter to the chief of the Louisville Metro Police requesting the department reopen the investigation. A tremendous amount of evidence was collected in this case. Fingerprints, vacuum samples from each of the car by the FBI, blood samples, her purse and all its contents, found three years later with credit cards and checks still inside her dentures cigarette butts from the car her shoes her clothes remington wrote she asked the evidence is now missing misplaced lost thrown away destroyed where did it go that's my question too where that's did really it good go question. how does evidence just disappear did it disintegrate in time did it accidentally get thrown away was it pushed in the back of the room not to be found again was it intentionally destroyed? I'm thinking maybe that's... I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, there should be records of this. I mean, we expect that, especially in a murder case, that, you know, that there's no statute of limitations on murder. We expect the police to handle this evidence appropriately and keep it. Keep it safe forever. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, but this was in 1965, so maybe they didn't have... 
you know, the modern collection techniques that we they have now. They couldn't keep but it in a room, though? Like, yeah. just keep it somewhere. They did, and then it disappeared. It got put under the desk. Like, it fell behind the shelf, and, and then... And then Otis, and the then janitor, the threw it away. pulled it through a hole in the wall. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but it appears to be gone at this point. According to Sergeant John Carr, sorry, who works in the Louisville Homicide Unit, the case was still active. Did I skip something? No, I didn't. All right. Carr stated that homicide cases remain open until there is an arrest made or a clearance of some sort in an interview with the Washington Post. He also said that multiple detectives have worked on the case for over 50-plus years and that some detectives have worked tirelessly on the case. In 2017, the Jones case that was never closed was reopened. Funded by the Emmett Till Unsolved Civil Rights Crime Act, which provided $13 million annually to the Department of Justice, the FBI, and U.S. state and local law officials to investigate and prosecute pre-1970s murders. Nonetheless, the murder of Alberta O. Jones remains unsolved. So what's your theory? What do you think happened? Well... At first, I thought she was robbed, but they didn't take her purse because it was hanging off the bridge. Right. So I mean, her credit card's still in it. Her checkbook's... You yeah. would think if she was going to be robbed, that would kind of be important. Yeah. Unless there was cash in there, and they took the cash, and then they chucked the purse off the bridge, and it hung on the bridge. But I don't Maybe. know. I don't know. I kind of lean towards... Well, first of all, you know, we said that she was beat in the head with a brick, and to me, that feels... A little bit personal, mm-hmm. and put that with the fact that she was found clothed, makes me think that sexual assault was not likely. I mean, of course, the perpetrator could have assaulted her and then redressed her, but there's no mention of that. So it, it makes it less likely, but not impossible. It just seems really personal, like they went after her for a reason. Yeah. So I kind of lean toward it having something to do with her being a civil rights activist and a prosecutor something along those lines but i don't know you know she, like she piss off was, the wrong person like maybe it was a hired no. hit a hard hit um from a political person or a well-connected businessman or just somebody she pissed off in some somebody way, she in a high position a position of power that that she pissed off and they weren't having it. That would like that would be my guess, but you know that like the we don't have enough information to clearly. You know, we're gonna solve someone, it, yo. We can do threw it. Away the evidence. Who knows? So, how was Alberta's picture chosen to be part of the Louisville hometown hero display all around the city? Well, Remington and Alberta's sister Flora raised $8,000 to purchase the banner for Jones you can see on the River City Bank building. You can check out the images that are in the background of recent protests on our website, along with other pictures of Alberta. Alright, so this week's feature charity is the Emmett Tilt Legacy Foundation. And tell us more about that, Andrea. Well, the Emmett Till Legacy Foundation honors the memory of Emmett Till who most people know, at 14 years old, was kidnapped, brutally tortured, 
lynched and murdered in 1955 during a racially motivated hate crime. Their mission is to bring the truth, justice, and healing, which can mean a full accounting of crimes committed and exhaustive investigations to the families of victims of unsolved murders committed during the civil rights era from 1954 to 1970. They're committed to educating, equipping, inspiring, and empowering today's youth, women, and their families for a better tomorrow. To learn more or to donate to the cause, visit EmmettTillLegacyFoundation.com. Well, that's it for this week's episode. I hope y'all enjoyed it. Sorry for stumbling over all my words. <laughs> we had fun, though. Calm Flora, Florida. <laughs> We're not professionals and try this at home. Maybe we'll get better. I don't know. I'm not promising Eventually. Anything. I don't know. <laughs> so, anyway, check out our website, our merch, and join us on Patreon. Follow us on social media. Media. I can even say social media. Facebook, Twitter. <laughs> uh, what's the other one? Instagram. All the places. All those places. Go there. Follow us. Like us. You know. Yeah. You know where to find us, stalkers. Stalkers.